Jewish prophets like Joel predicted that there would come an ultimate conflict. All of history is a struggle over who has the right to be the king on the mountain, and at Pentecost in the first century, the Apostle Peter made this incredible claim. The end time has already begun. Let's look with our study leader, Dave Wordson, at Acts chapter 2, verses 14 and following, as the Apostle begins his powerful, solemn message by pointing out the absurdity of the they're drunk explanation. If you're like me, you feel like you've been living in an icebox the last few days, and one thing that we learned is that we really aren't in control, are we? The Lord just turns down the temperature a little bit, and Super Bowl week or not, we stop. The world stops. I don't know why you were sitting there and looking at that frigid, cold tundra, whether you started thinking, hey, this could be the end of the world. But we were kind of reminded that we're not in control, that the end of the world is coming. In fact, the prophet Joel, if you're from a Jewish background, almost all the Jewish prophets speak about the ultimate end of the world. In fact, if you wonder, where did all this idea that the world's going to come to an end? It came from the Jewish prophets. And Joel evidently had lived in Texas a little bit because he knew all about locust plagues. He knew all about grasshoppers. Not really. He lived in the Middle East where they have terrible locust plagues. And he used that to describe an ultimate invasion of armies where the armies of the world gather. And he describes the devastation that comes from that. But incredibly, he also makes a prediction and he lays the foundation for the message that we're going to look at today because he said that not only would there be a great ultimate battle where all the nations of the world would gather together in the valley of the great I am's judgment, Jehoshaphat, the valley of Jehoshaphat means the great valley of the great I am's judgment, but he says something incredible. He says that in those days after that, there's going to be a pouring out of God's spirit upon all different kinds of people, upon men and women, upon slaves and servants, and both men and women, slaves and servants. And he says that this incredible, wondrous thing's going to happen, that everyday normal people will be filled with the Spirit. Not just David, not just a man like Moses, not just a man you know, like Isaiah, but it would be just everyday normal people like us. They would be filled with the Spirit. Incredibly, the Apostle Peter explains what people were saying was drunkenness, and it's appropriate because probably some of you have friends that don't know the Lord Jesus very much, and what you need to realize is that this weekend is the religious spiritual equivalent. It's what you do when you don't know the Lord, and you really need to understand that. You see, you want to worship. You want to gather together with people But I want you to know something that you can all understand. You can go down to Sundance Square, and I've been there a million times. You walk down towards the convention center. There's a great big bar there. If it's at night, Friday night, Saturday night, there's almost always a great big lineup outside this great big club. I promise you last night you would find a lot of drunks in that bar, but not this morning. And that's where I want you to turn in Acts chapter 2. The Apostle Peter knows where people are at, and what has just happened in Acts chapter 2 is you've got 120 people that suddenly start speaking languages that they've never studied before. 
They're speaking Akkadian from the east. They're speaking the languages of Egypt. They're speaking Latin from the area of Rome. They're speaking all these languages, and it makes a lot of noise. 120 people declaring the praises of God and declaring the wondrous wonders that God has done in all these different languages, it made a lot of noise. Dr. Luke didn't see fit to tell us exactly where this message took place. Because there's 3,000 people that respond at the end, I know that it's not in this upper room where 120 people were gathered. It's got to be out in a big area. Possibly it's in the court of the Gentiles that's in the temple area. They spill out from uh, the area of the upper room. They move up the stairs, probably up into the temple area. And a large crowd has gathered, kind of like the old um, camp meetings that some of you have heard your grandparents speak about. The apostle Peter stands up and Luke presents him like a great Greek orator. And in, in the Greek culture, to be able to stand before an audience and with great solemnity and with great seriousness and with great power they would address a crowd. The Apostle Peter is able to do that. This is the days before the microphone. You didn't have somebody up there where you had one of these things on your ear. You had to have a great big voice. So I want you to feel that. The Apostle Peter stands up and he's going to address this crowd. I want you to understand that this is the crowd that just 50 days earlier had crucified Jesus. So you talk about an incredible electricity in the air. Tremendous movements are taking place. Many of the Jews believe, let's throw over the Romans. We need to get political freedom. And the Jewish hierarchy, the priests, Caiaphas and Annas, they're all trying to control the Jerusalem worship. All this is going on. Great time of foment in Jewish history. Peter stands up at one of the great big feasts where thousands upon thousands of Jews are gathered from all over the unknown world, and he addresses them like this. He begins by addressing their question in verse 14 about the drunkenness. Most of the crowd, a lot of the crowd are saying, hey, they're just drunk. Look what Peter says. Then Peter stood up with the 11. He raised his voice, like I was just telling you, and he addressed the crowds. The words there are used of, of a great oratory that Peter's going to present. Very serious, very powerful. He says, fellow Jews. So the audience, I want all of you to understand that this is all a Jewish audience. So we're not talking about, you know, here's Christianity religion, here's Judaism religion. In the first century, there isn't such a thing right now at this point, another religion in the world called Christianity. No one ever heard of it. So I want you to understand that because what I want to talk to you this morning is much bigger then whether you're culturally Jewish, whether you're culturally Christian, whether you're culturally Muslim, whether you're culturally Christian science, whether you're culturally Mormon, whatever you might be, the Apostle Peter is going to talk about something much bigger than that. I want you to know that he's speaking, it says, to Jewish people, but it's very specific Jewish people. These are the Jewish people that in Jerusalem, just 50 days earlier, said, crucify him, crucify him, and you could walk to the hill where they crucified Jesus. And there's all kinds of viewpoints about what happened when they crucified Jesus. One of Peter's points is going to be, they made the biggest mistake that you can ever make. That's the power of this message. He's speaking to an audience that has made the biggest mistake that anyone can ever make. And I want to make sure that none of you make that same mistake. 
That's Peter's passion. That's Peter's power in this message. He is speaking to an audience that has done the worst thing you can ever do. They have made a terrible mistake. They didn't recognize who Jesus was. So what Peter's going to do in this message is Peter's going to explain this is who God says Jesus is. So this is the way the message will go. Peter's going to say this is who God says Jesus is. Then he's going to prove it from the Jewish Old Testament, from portions of Scripture that were written hundreds of years before Jesus came. And then he's going to drive home what are you going to decide about what God says about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. That's where the whole message is going to go. But he begins answering a question. They're not drunk, but they instead are the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Let's see how he does it. Look what he says. He says, these men are not drunk, as you may suppose. And he has a very common answer. It's what I just told you. All of you that have passed where you used to get drunk, if I were to ask you, how many of you were dead drunk doing really nutty things at 9 o'clock in the morning? Not many of you. You have to really, really be an alcoholic to be drunk at 9 o'clock. That's, everybody knows that. So Peter begins, I want you to know, contrary to what you think, the Bible really understands people. Peter begins with this crowd. Everybody in the audience would have gone, that's right. And I want you to understand that your explanations about what's going on will often prove to be just as ludicrous. But I want you to see how Peter takes the crowd. They're all saying, oh, they're a bunch of drunks. Peter says, come on, wait a minute. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Nobody gets drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. Then he says this, and this is powerful to his Jewish audience. He says, this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And then he quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and following, 28 through 32. Look what he says. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And this is the thrust of his message. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Joel's prophecy makes two very important statements you all need to understand. Number one, Joel predicts that there's going to come a time When the Spirit of God that rested upon Moses, for example, in Numbers chapter 11, the Lord let some of the elders in ancient Israel, in the generation that escaped from Egypt, God's Holy Spirit came upon some of the elders. And some of Moses' close sidekicks says, hey, we can't have this. You're the Spirit-filled man. And Moses' response in Numbers 11 was, I wish that everyone had the filling of the Spirit. And the Old Testament began to build this idea that there would come a time when God's Holy Spirit wouldn't just rest upon a few selected leaders in Israel, but he would come to rest upon every single person that called on the name of the Lord. I hope you're one of those people. What Peter is declaring is that when the church was born at Pentecost, it happened. That's what Peter is claiming. Peter is claiming that Joel predicted a time would come when all the people 
all kinds of people, both men and women, you ladies are included, you people that have a lot of money, you people that don't have any money at all, those that are free, those that are servants, Joel goes out of his way to clear all the social barriers, all the barriers in sexuality, all of this kind of thing, and says, hey, everyone can be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing he says, and he says, it's now happened. He points to the 120 and says, see these men and women? They're fulfilling Joel's prophecy. The second thing he says is really important. Joel predicted that the end of the world was coming. See all this stuff where it says... I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Now, these people had just seen Jesus crucified. When Jesus was crucified, at 3 o'clock it became dark. They experienced an earthquake. There was a tremendous signs in the heaven and tremendous shaking on the earth below. It's possible there was a blood moon in that period, over that weekend. And in the ancient world, those were powerful portents. They are in our world. Tremendous cataclysmic things. Joel also says, at the ultimate end of time, there, according to the book of Revelation, it uses the same language. It's saying that when the judge of all the earth comes from heaven into this earth, just like it said in Acts chapter 1, this Jesus whom you saw going to heaven is going to so come The Bible says that history is going to have a great climactic ultimate moment where Jesus comes, and it's going to be the end of the world. I want all of you to understand, you can believe whatever you want to about the cycle of history, life repeats itself, you can believe in reincarnation, but I'm telling you this morning that the Jewish scriptures, the apostle Peter is telling you, no, it isn't. Joel predicted, no, it isn't cyclic. Every single one of you, every one of you in this room, one day are going to face Jesus. Every one of us. And a lot of you wonder, he says, man, I can't believe, like, I live in a family where people do really wrong things, and they lie and they cheat, and I'm really mad about it. There's going to come a day when there won't be any law court where the judge doesn't have the foggiest idea what's going on in family court. Jesus will know everything about the situation. He'll judge. If you've lied... There's going to come a day where Jesus will, you won't, have to, you won't have to confess your lie. Jesus knows that you lie. If you've committed adultery, it'll be as plain as day. If you have been angry to the point that you would murder somebody, it'll all be exposed. It's all going to be judged. That's what the, that's what the text is saying. There's going to come an end of time where everything's called to account. And that's why Joel called, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, what's the important question that the preacher Peter raises? If I am going to face the ultimate end of the world, and there's a group of people that have had God's Holy Spirit called upon them, what group of people do you want to be in? Tell me. The group that has the Spirit, don't you? So the big question is, what's the big question? Who is Jesus? And that's your big question. I want every one of you to not just think about your sin school days. I want you to think right now, who do you think Jesus is? Because that's what Peter is talking about in this message. What he's saying is, you people right now are witnessing the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Joel predicted not only that people would be filled with the Spirit, normal people, which has now happened, Joel also predicted the end of the world is going to come. 
In fact, Peter's actually saying it's actually the end time has actually begun. It's like we're at the edge of a cliff and we're walking right along the edge of the cliff. And he's challenging the audience. He says, you need to know that you need to call upon the name of the Lord. And now in the rest of his message, he's going to make it really clear who Jesus is. He's going to talk about who a lot of Jesus' contemporaries thought he was. Then he's going to tell us who the Jewish leaders said he was. Then he's going to tell us who God says he was, and he's going to prove it from the Old Testament, and then he's going to challenge us. Who do you think he is? And what will you do about it? He goes on with this. He says in verse 22, that's the signal, men of Israel. He addresses his audience again. Men of Israel, I want you to listen to this. This is, he starts out by saying the way most people began to think about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. I want you to feel the power of what Peter's doing. He's looking at the audience that knows Jesus. They know he's from Nazareth. And that's where a lot of people in the audience said that's who Jesus is. That's what some of you think. Jesus was a poor, peasant, North Galilean Jewish guy. That's what a lot of people in Peter's audience would say. He's from Galilee. He's from Nazareth. And that's a dirty town. There's a Roman garrison there. And we don't have anything to do with Jesus. We could care less. There was Roman soldiers kind of gathered around the crowd trying to keep things calm at Pentecost. Some of those Roman soldiers would say, man, who cares? I could care less what Peter's saying. And you can say some of you might be like that. You're sitting there going, he's just Jesus of Nazareth. But I want you to listen carefully. You live in a world where Jesus is the most powerful, influential person that ever lived. Nobody's even close. So I don't care what you think, the reality of history is that whoever Jesus is has totally changed the history of the world. And you owe it to yourself to listen really carefully because he isn't just Jesus of Nazareth. It's very important that he is Jesus of Nazareth because he means if you're a carpenter, Jesus knows you backwards and forwards. He's not some religious guy that just lives in big institutions. He knows what it's like to work with policemen. He knows what it's like to work with firemen. He knows what it's like to work on sewer lines. He knows what it's like just to be a normal people. All that stuff that you hear that this is not for me from normal everyday people is just dead wrong. The eternal son of God chose to become just Jesus of Nazareth. That's what Christmas is about. Because he wants to come close to every one of you. He understands every one of you. He understands us. But I want you to know something else. When he came just as Jesus of Nazareth, and as he started walking through Galilee, and then he walked through Judea, he even made one venture into Tyre, Jesus did miracles. Notice what it says here. This is feel the thrust of Peter's message. These are Jerusalem Jews. They have friends all over Israel. It's not any bigger than the city of New Jersey. Notice what Peter said. He says, God did miracles. God accredited Jesus. So Peter starts out by saying, you might think he's just Jesus of Nazareth, but God accredited him. And he did it by the miracles, the wonders and the signs that God did among you as you yourselves know. And I want you to see, nobody stands up and says, oh, that's a bunch of baloney. He's just a big magician. In fact, I want you to know something. It's really interesting. When you, like, when I read second century literature, Jewish literature, it's amazing. 
Jews that are fighting against this incredibly powerful movement don't say there wasn't powerful miracles. They say he was a magician. I mean, nobody says, oh, all those miracles are a bunch of baloney. No one ever, that never, never happened. You can say that 2,000 years later, but you read the Jewish polemic against this growing movement, they don't say the miracles never happened. Everybody knew he was a wonder worker. And this is just 50 days after Pentecost to the very audience where they, they saw the miracles and Peter looked at them and says, hey, you saw lame people walk. You saw blind people see. You saw dead people raised from the dead. And what Peter's saying is God was accrediting that this Jesus of Nazareth is his beloved son like Luke's gospel begins at the baptism of Jesus. So Peter's telling us that God had given the first century audience, the first century audience, tons of credentials. The Old Testament made it really clear. When the Messiah comes, he'll, lame people will walk, blind people will see, slaves will be set free. The Old Testament was really clear that the Messiah would have that kind of power. And when John the Baptist said, is this the one that we should follow? Jesus didn't say, yeah, I am. He said, he quoted him from Isaiah. He told John the Baptist people, you go back and tell, and then he quotes Isaiah. What was the implication of that? The Old Testament, hundreds of years, said, hey, this is what the ultimate son of David will do. Jesus did all of it. So what's the conclusion from that? He is the Messiah. What did the Jewish people do in the first century? And I want you to know this isn't anti-Jewish because everybody's Jewish. Peter, the guy preaching, is Jewish. There isn't a Gentile except maybe a few Roman soldiers on the outskirts of the crowd that aren't even mentioned. What did they do to him? Look what it says. This is the ultimate mistake. Look what it says. God accredited him with these incredible signs and wonders and miracles. This man, Jesus, is a man. He's much more than that, but he's fully a man. This man was handed over by you. But it was according to God's purpose. God was running. It's like a big orchestra. God wrote the score. God is Tuscanini that's leading the orchestra. That's the idea here. I want all of you to know you can fight that all of your life. You can watch The Matrix. There's always a big battle back and forth. Are things totally determined or do you have free will? And as Americans, we always come out, oh, yeah, we, got, we can make choices. Yeah, you can make choices. Absolutely. And you're totally responsible for them. But you'll never get outside the orchestration that God's writing. The violinist, the first violinist plays his part. The trombonist plays their part. And they're totally responsible for it. God predicted that the Messiah would be crucified hundreds of years before it happened. And that's one of the explanations. Because someone would say, well, man, how in the world could the great I am allow his son to come into the world and die like that, be crucified by jealous, angry, lying people? That's crazy. I don't buy it. Who wants to worship a God that loses control like that? And the first century answer was he didn't lose control. If you'll listen long enough, you'll find out it was the most incredible expression of eternal love that you'll ever discover. But you can laugh at it, you can scoff at it, but in the end, God's the one that writes the score. 
And the Jews in the first century, together with the Romans, it said that the Jews handed them over to lawless people, which was a body slam on the Romans. The one thing the Romans were supposed to give us was law and order. And what the gospel exposes is what happens in human courts when God isn't in control. The great Pilate, that's supposed to be the great exemplar of the of Pilate, of Tiberius Caesar, he lets a totaliness of men. He thinks washing his hands is going to clear him of this. It's crazy. He knows that they're lying about him. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that they're just jealous of him, and he puts a man on a cross. That's how bad we are. Now, some of you might think that you're sick. Some of you are sick today. You got a chest infection. But I want to tell you something. Your whole society says all that's wrong with you, you're sick. And I want to tell you something. That demeans you. If you're just sick, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to identify your disease, and then I'm going to manipulate your body. I'm going to give you all kinds of pills and finally figure out how to get you right. And I'll demean you in doing that. That's what Clockwork Orange, which is a horrible film, but Clockwork Orange talked about a society where everyone's sick, and the only answer is therapeutic. What it means is that I don't respect your identity. What the Bible says is something totally different. You know what's wrong with you this morning? You know what's wrong with me this morning? We're jealous, we are murderous, we are angry, and we murder the Son of God by our sins. Some of you today are saying, I'm much more interested in drinking. I'm much more interested in going to bed with someone that I shouldn't. I'm much more interested in partying and having a really good time and swearing and cussing and doing all a lot of things. Some of you are saying, I'm much more interested in hanging on to my anger that I've been hanging on. That's what crucified Jesus. That's what Peter said. All that stuff puts Jesus on a cross. It's the ultimate mistake. I want all of you to realize, and I'm included, who crucified Jesus? Historically, the Jewish audience, specifically the high priests, the religious leaders, getting a mob, they crucified Jesus. It wasn't a racial thing. Jesus was Jewish, they were Jewish. Historically, they handed them over to the Romans, and the Romans hung them up. It pictures it very graphically. They, they just put them up, strung them up on a tree, the, the Greek word that's used there. But what I want all of you to realize, and it's been a very terrible thing over the last 2,000 years, there's been some Gentile that said, we would have never done that. Let's persecute the Jews. They're the ones that crucified Jesus. That's not what Peter's saying. Peter's saying to me, David, you crucified Jesus. You make the same mistake, so do you. Our sin crucifies Jesus. But this is the incredible thing. What did God say? God said, by wonders and miracles, this is not just Jesus of Nazareth, this is my son. This is the promised savior. So what's gonna happen? Look what Peter goes on and says, it's incredible. Peter says, but God, see the great contrast? It's incredible in verse 24. But God raised him from the dead. That's what our faith is. Jesus was hung up on this cross. It was done by wickedness and by our sin. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him. And the word there for agony is the birth pangs of death. The terrible pain, it's a powerful word. It's saying like a woman who is experiencing this incredible pain, but then she gives birth to a baby. What it's saying is that Jesus went into the terrible agony of death, and I can't say this about any other man that's ever lived in history. It says death couldn't hold on to him. 
The Greek also has this idea of him, it pictures him like being bound. Some of the Old Testament imagery is birth pangs of death. It also has this idea of being bound. And I got news for you, death really binds you. Some of you have experienced it this week. Sam and Ann Rogers just lost their data. They're up in Tennessee this afternoon. They'll say goodbye from a human standpoint to old Mr. Rogers, who was 96 years of age, but the pangs of death still hurt. They still hurt, even at 96. What I got news for you, the reason we're here today and the reason we can be so full of hope is when Jesus went into the grave and experienced the agony of death, the agony of all that death brings, it couldn't hold him because God raised him to to life. Isn't that incredible? That's why you believe in him. That's why you trust him. God gave life to his son because his son was the second person in the Trinity. Death couldn't hold him. Nobody else that's ever lived has beaten death. And it's already happened on this planet. What I want you to know is you're not just following some nice religious idea. I want your faith to be totally grounded. I want you today to rejoice because you know that nothing, not even death, can separate you from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus because your faith is rooted in a man that in history was hung on a cross, put in a grave, but then he rose again from the dead. That's what Peter's claiming. But then he says something incredible. He says, you should have known that. He says, I was an eyewitness. Peter could have said, hey, I saw the empty tomb. Peter at this point could have said, hey, I saw grave clothes empty. That's what the Gospel of John closes with before it gives you the resurrection account. Peter runs in the tomb and sees the grave clothes there. Peter could have done that, but he doesn't do that. You know what he does? He looks at the Jewish audience and says, hey, you should have known that. The Old Testament predicted, and he quotes an amazing psalm. It's Psalm 16. He says, David, he says, David said about him. David predicted that Jesus of Nazareth, who was really Jesus, the son of David, was going to rise again from the dead. Look what it says in Psalm 16. I saw the Lord. It's like the ultimate son of David is speaking here. But the Jewish audience that he was speaking to would think David's talking about himself, and Peter wrestles with, can it be just King David? David says, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. This morning, If you know Jesus, God is at your right hand. Nothing can ultimately shake you. That's what the psalmist is saying. Therefore, my heart is glad. I hope that you're filled with joy because I'm going to give you a really good reason to be joyful. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. That's what the people were doing speaking the foreign languages. They were speaking great joy, great celebration, speaking the great wondrous things that God has done. What was the reason for this joy? Because my body also will live in hope. Well, my body is living in in a slow slide towards deterioration. Suddenly, my thumb starts hurting, doesn't work very well. I think back carefully. I haven't done a thing to my thumb. My friend Dan Bauckham, he's sitting here. I mean, it's like we have the flu of shoulder injuries. It's like the the shoulder virus. One of my friends after another has to go and get their shoulders fixed. My body is not resting in hope. I, Mary's got, you know, it's, it's called. So Oprah Winfrey has all the, the, all the models that were the lead models when I was young. I'm going, oh, goodness. There's Cheryl Tigg. She doesn't look like Cheryl Tigg anymore. 
There is Christy Brinkley. Remember the Chevy Chase movies? She doesn't look like that anymore. She isn't diving in the pools anymore. And I want you to know, you laugh about that. Our culture worships the physical body. There's some of you, men and women both, you exercise till it's going to kill you. And I love exercise. I want to motivate you. You're body to the temple of the Holy Spirit, but some of you are running because you think you're eternal. And I got news for you. All you need to do is watch the Super Bowl today, and you need to look at the players that used to play and the players that play, and you'll realize your American dream that says this life is enough is the biggest lie than anyone could ever tell you. And I want you to be able to say, hey, my body, I want every one of you girls, every one of you ladies, every one of you men, be able to say, my body rests in hope. I want you to be 95 years old. You can be in a wheelchair. You can be losing your thinking capacities, and your family can know that body rests in hope. You say, how can I do that? How can I have a hope that's bigger than just the American dream of 70 years, which doesn't usually take place? Because of what it says here. It says, my body will rest in hell because you won't abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. David's making an incredible statement. He's saying that God is not going to abandon whoever this is to the grave. In fact, their body is not even going to decay they're going to live forever in the paths of life. In the wisdom literature, the wisdom literature describes a person that as they're walking in wisdom, they walk with God, they walk right through death into life. The Old Testament does predict the resurrection. The wisdom literature says those that follow God's wisdom will find the path of life. Death can't even conquer that. And this psalm is repeating it. Therefore, it says, you'll fill me with joy in your presence. What an incredible statement. Just like Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. What an incredible statement. Now Peter says, the audience is saying, what, who's he talking about? Look what it says. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died. So don't trust in King David. In fact, he died, and he was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. In fact, John Hyrcanus about 150 years before this, robbed his tomb and took out about 132 shekels to pay off a debt. King Herod the Great, that you all study about in the Christmas story, King Herod tried to do the same trick, only he couldn't find any shekels. He took some of the vessels. That's all he could find. So everybody in the audience, the, the, the city of David is this area, it's kind of like a valley of the kings in Egypt, only it's, it's much smaller. It's Israel's valley of the kings. You can go to archaeology sites and see there are tombs. We can't locate exactly where King David's tomb is, but everybody in the first century, yeah, we know where David was buried. Look what Peter says. But he was a prophet. King David was a prophet. He knew that God had promised him on death that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Remember I've taught you? The woman's seed. The word that's used here is not just descendants. Someone from David's loins is the King James idea. That's why Luke gives you Mary's lineage and not King David's. Because the virgin birth, King David didn't get into it. But Mary was from David as well. 
So it fulfills the promise. One that God said to David in 2 Samuel 7, you're going to produce a David did, someone in your line who's going to be a king forever and ever and ever. And David puts two and two together. He says, seeing that it was with the head, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. David knew that the, the Messiah, the ultimate son of David, would rise again from the dead. He would not be abandoned to grave. God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of this fact. And he is now exalted to the right hand of God. He received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see. Now Peter, like every good preacher, now he's back to where he started. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon you. And now he's telling why. Because Jesus ascended to God's right hand. The Father installed him as the king of the universe in heaven till all of his enemies would be subjected, like Psalm 110 says, until I make, verse 33, until all I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And God gave him the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is so kind and so gracious. Jesus poured out the greatest gift you could ever receive. He poured out upon anyone that would trust him the Holy Spirit. And every one of us can have the Holy Spirit come and live in. When the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, you're totally clean. You're forgiven because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. When the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, he gives you resurrection life that'll never end. It's the greatest gift you could ever receive. That's what Peter's saying. Therefore, Peter closes his sermon by saying, let all of Israel be assured that God has made this Jesus, this Jesus whom you crucified, both the Lord. Remember I told you, he answered the question, who should we call upon? Peter's closing the message saying, you need to call upon Jesus of Nazareth, who is actually the Lord, the great I am in the flesh, and he's the Messiah. It says, with, when the people of Israel heard this, they were, were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent, turn around, change your mind about Jesus. Change your mind about what you thought about him. Realize, break your heart that you crucified the son of glory. You need to, re like Joel talks about repenting in sackcloth and ashes because of you disobeying God. Peter's saying the same thing. When you really understand what we did to Jesus, it, it really breaks us with our whole being. That weight comes upon us. But then we can turn to Jesus. It's not a sorrow that produces death. It's a sorrow that causes you to say, oh, Jesus, save me now. It says, then be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 3,000 people responded. How do you respond? We see it today. I want to ask you, like, who do you really say Jesus is in your heart? That's what's important. Do you believe he's the son of God? Have you asked him to forgive you for your sins? 3,000 Jews that day, in their hearts, they said, we made a mistake. The worst mistake we'd ever make, and they broke. They turned away from that false view. And they turned around and they said, he's not just Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just a great religious leader. We're going to turn this way. He is the promised son of David, the Messiah. He is the one that died the way the Old Testament predicted but he also rose again. And we're going to put all of our trust, we're going to call on him to be saved. Maybe some of you, 
You need to step over that line. You need to think really hard. Who is Jesus? And as your pastor, I want to be really clear. I don't want you to put your trust in your religious affiliation. I don't want you to put your trust that you've been born and, and raised in this stuff. I want you to add yourself deep in your soul. Who is Jesus? Who do I believe Jesus is? And if you've never said, I believe he is the Lord, I'm going to call on him to save me in your soul. I'm going to believe that he died, and I'm going to rejoice in that forgiveness. Some of you are like Christian and pilgrim progress. You're walking at Mount Calvary. You've got a great big load of guilt on your back. Peter's saying, look to Calvary. Look to the empty tomb. That great load of guilt will fall off your back. It'll roll down Mount Calvary. It'll roll away from you forever. But you've got to decide. You've got to call. That's what Peter's saying. 3,000 Jews said, Peter, we're pricked in our heart. Have you been pricked in your heart this morning? I can't do that. But God's spirit can. 